Hi everyone, this is John McCracken, and this is part two of my podcast with the great legendary Jeff Berlin. I would say that a lot of our playing reflects a lot of our, I mean, I was aggressive and therefore my bass playing is aggressive. And, you know, now I'm fairly well boring. It's like, you know, we should do a whole album of uh, ABBA covers. I think that'd be nice. I'd love to. I'd like to do like the ballads that we never really liked as children, but here they are now. The Long Jean Symphonette. Symphonette Society? Jeff plays Jeff plays Zamfir on the bass. Richard Claterman. <laughs> you should jam with him. I think it'd be a fun jam. Well, people won't know this, but I could be, like do like Jeff covers Yan Frankie Yankovic. You know, the greatest polkas of all time. Track to Roompa Oompa See, but that's the sad part is now that might have actually some validity. <laughs> the crazier, more out it is. <laughs> Jeff does Frankie, which doesn't sound very good for me then. So this, so getting back to the, so how did those sessions work? Where did you record with Bruford? We recorded. It was oh, all in England, right? It was all in England. I think the first couple were at Trident Recording Studios, where I believe the Beatles did Hey Jude. That's right. And so, yes. uh, that was, I mean, it's a huge studio, of course. I mean, I played in the studio with uh, some history to it. Uh, I learned a lot there. I could not figure out why I could not get a blasting, ballsy, beefy, huge bass tone. Hmm. I've sought it all my life, and quite frankly, and I'll say it right now uh, on our little chat here, you're the first guy I think that had ever helped me realize what I would call a truly <laughs> rotund and, <laughs> and meaty, oh, gutsy bass tone, but I had always really kind of sought yeah, well, I, I remember reading things so that you would always complain that you were always kind of too low in the mixes of those, some of those Bruford records. Well, the well, second say, one for sure. I have to say Ron Mallet did a good job on uh, Gradually Going Tornado, though. I think it was an overcompensation to my being concerned about the second one because he couldn't hear bass yeah. on a lot of it. I heard it at actually Don Airy's house. Oh, really? And we got the record. I put it on proudly. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I'm here. I remember playing these parts. And you hear, wah, 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 yeah. And in the background, you hear like, I said, something isn't right here. The bass is supposed to be blasting right along with the, with the drums. It's supposed to be an equal or general equal thing. So you, you had no input into, into None. that? No, I went home. I mean, I, sure. I, again, had to learn uh, to... To, you know that if you want to use me under certain circumstances that yeah. is not all of course yeah that I require these things you know and I don't think it's unfair for me to, to make those requests but in the early days I, I don't get me I mean who would mix or who would record a bass player and not mix them in there Patrick Merez did the same thing and that's what I was gonna say earlier it's like Alphonse Muzan and I I mean we when we met there's a I can hear the song in my head it's on on uh, Patrick's record and it was roaring and we played it as a trio. Yeah. And Patrick was, you know, on the piano. Alphonse was just burning. Yeah. And he was, he was looking at me with his eyes open too. All these guys would look at me with their eyes open, like, wow, check this bass player out. Heard the record, and you hear the drums and the bass. 
And then on top, you hear piano, 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 and 150 darn stupid freaking synthesizers. My therapy's collapsing right here and now. You know, I mean, how can well, I guess we can figure out whose record it was. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness, I, I could not figure that out. That thing. I learned a lot from that. Being disappointed on those two records. Oh, but yeah. that record got me hired by Al DiMiola, Lenny White. The Brecker Brothers, Brian Auger, Ray Barreto, and Tony Williams, uh, and I. <laughs> 1976, we all went to France to play a gig. Really? Al DiMiola, oh Lenny goodness, White. I never heard of this. The Brecker Brothers, Brian Auger, uh, Ray Barreto, uh, Tony Williams, and me. Was any of this ever recorded or anything? It's a live I gig. don't recall, but it was a festival. Oh and I look, God. and it's like, name, huge, name, huge, name, huge, name, big, name, huge, name, huge, name, Jeff Berlin on the base of it. And a tiny little font. Tiny little thing, that's right. With Jeff Berlin. That's <laughs> like I say. Side oh my God, I think yeah, there's probably some things floating around somewhere out there. I imagine so, but it was actually quite funny, because after I got off the stage, because I played with that same boxer intensity that yeah, you yeah. were mentioning, I said, I'm with these guys. I said, I, I must attack. And uh, when I got off the stage, it was possibly my first European interview of my life, or one of the first, and a mic like, a, like Tony Clifton. <laughs> they were pushing in your face. Went right on my face, and I hear a guy go like, you know, France Radio, don't be scared, because I jumped back when this mic was shoved in my face. And what's the question? The first question I remember, this like, you have a France Radio. What do you think of Stanley Clark? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I say he's great. Thank you very much. Have a good day. He was gone. You know, <laughs> my first, you know, entry into publicity. Jefferson likes Stanley Clark. Headline: Stop the presses. So, uh, so okay. So you did the Bruford, and then Alan left, and then you had the the great unknown John Clark. Yeah. Who I, I saw that band in Philadelphia with John. Oh, was that where at the Tavern of the Decade? The I decade. can't remember where it was, but it was a great gig. And John yeah. did a great job. I mean, you know, he didn't. I mean, he sounded a little bit like Alan, but he wasn't trying to be Alan. And uh, I love John. He was, yeah, but he then he did really go back into the unknown. No, <laughs> I think he got a touring gig with somebody like some established guy in Britain or something. Scylla Black, it might have been, um, but I could be wrong. And if John hears this, he can correct me. But my time with John was great. What a marvelous guy! Marvelous guy. Yeah. Funny too. And he, I, he was not a drinker, but yeah. on the, those off nights when he drank, he never changed a whit. He just got funnier. He'd be like, you know, like this, and uh, he'd, be, he'd be sort of tipsy, and, and it, like, I think he walked up to some guy, and he goes, hit me as hard as you can, and I said, John, come here, I grabbed him. He's I just a big guy. <laughs> I'm just, come here, man. Just What's here. with these guys, uh, Jack Bruce? He's, uh, it wasn't a box people? Is that the, uh, he said, I'll tell you the quote, uh, Janet, pull over. There's a, he said, there was a guy, Janet, pull over. I want to hit him. <laughs> Okay, dear. <laughs> While you're out, can you get me a quart? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you pick your nose up off the sidewalk. So how, did, so how did it come about that you sang on that, on that record? Because that's, uh, that's quite, a, quite a gutsy thing to do. I, it was an experiment, and it was a failed experiment, in my opinion. Other people might disagree, uh, but I, 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 I gulped it out. You're I channeling could, Jack Bruce. A lot. Yeah, I would say Jack definitely <laughs> figured, and I had no style. And now when I sing the ballads, I'm more like Tom, not like, 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 yeah, Tony Bennett, you and 
you know, I, I have no style as a vocalist, but I did channel Jack, and uh, but I didn't well, have what, his what pipes. What compelled you guys to do vocals instead of just continuing the instrument because Alan left? Or? I believe because Bill asked for it. Oh. I mean, we actually had a single out. Really? Yeah, we actually released a single. I don't know where it went. I can't imagine it went too far, but uh, we had a single, and Joe Frazier was on one side and a vocal tune was on the other, so I sort of wow. was leader of that band. I'll tell you a funny uh, Bill Bruford story. Bill taught me from the early days, he said that when you work a crowd or play to a crowd or perform to a crowd, try not to perform just to the front front rows, but try to perform to the back of the room. Mm -hmm. He says, if you can somehow connect with them, you've connected with everyone in between. So I took him to heart. And again, I was young and absolutely inexperienced in these matters and fairly fearless in trying things out. So we played a gig in Boulder, Colorado, where we were in a bowl, actually in a bowl, a football, smallish, like bowl. And it was a lot of bands that day, and we were on. And we started to play, so I went right up to the edge of the stage, <laughs> right up there, and looked out at the audience and started to like play to them. Yeah, nah, 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 nah. And all of a sudden, something went flying by my head. Oh. And I saw it and I felt, I did. And I heard a clatter behind me. Oh. And I went right back to the back where the band was and I never moved out of that spot for the rest of the set. At least it wasn't some guy's underwear. I would rather, if it was going to hit me, I could have taken that. But it was a hard object. Somebody saw that's this scary. idiot on that's the scary. front of the stage, you know, clearly making an ass out of himself. Oh, that's, that's actually not funny. And he was going to teach all. me a lesson or she. Wow. But uh, it went right by my head. I, ne- I went right back. <laughs> I was scared to death. <laughs> Stupid rock fans. You don't see that at a jazz game. I said, I'm sharp minor. <laughs> you know. Surprised you didn't jump down and go after them. <laughs> nah. If I had known who it was, I what was that joke? You know, I, I'm not a wimp, a wimp. You know, my wife called me a wimp today, and I was so mad at her, I almost said something. Yeah, I wouldn't have gone after anybody. So after, uh, oh well, uh, I have a question because we talked about some, you know, inventions and innovations. Obviously, Alan was an inventor too, but you were also like kind of at the vanguard of creating different ways of bass configuration and stuff, right? Thin necks and. Oh, yeah, you knew about that. Um, Yeah, it's not something that I, you know, I've sort of hovered between popularity and not, I mean, my stock goes up and it goes down. And it's just my my, uh, karma and my my reality right now. My thing's going up now rather well because of you, I should say. But at the time, I created a lot of things that I didn't get credit for. I don't really mind, but what did I do? I mean... It, it was both education-oriented and both bass-oriented. Um, when I was at Berkeley, they had no music that I could study mm-hmm. uh, that would re- help me to learn how to play the bass better. It's just that's how it was. I was arranging a com- composition there, sure. and that's really what the meat of, of the Berkeley course and the Berkeley school right. was for me. So one day I'm at the, they have a little, what they call the library or, or the bookstore, and there's this book that says Chord Studies for Trombone, and I asked to see it, and when I opened it, it is exactly in my clef and exactly uh, uh, within the range of a bass guitar, goes no lower and no higher than the range of my instrument, and it's jazz studies. So I bought the book, 
And from when I saw the, the validity and the importance of this, I started to subsequently, sure. as I you know got more and more well known, I started to tell people about trombone music. And then I got into transcriptions and would tell people about transcriptions. And then I got into chord tones and would tell people about chord tones. So there's sort of a common element in bass education now that proliferates. And I'm basically the, I'm not the, I didn't invent chord tones and I didn't invent trombone music, but I'm kind of the guy that promoted all of these things to people that did not know about these things. So in a sense, I feel a little responsible in a positive way that I changed bass education uh, for the better. Um, what else? In, in, I mean, if... Well, the thin neck thing, right? I mean, you were one of the first to... Oh, you heard about that, that too. So um, the thin neck thing came about very late in the 1970s. What bass... What, I forget what bass you were playing with, Bruford. Did you have a couple I of... varied. I right. had an old jazz bass where the pickups were replaced and that didn't quite... I, I was always experimenting because sure. I couldn't quite find a sound. The only bass that actually worked great for me was the bass built by Glenn Kwan, the guy that built the right. Leo Kwan badass bass bridge. Sure, I remember seeing that on the back of every album. Apparently. Yeah, apparently we have to... Th- right. Yeah. Oh, what did Jeff say? What was, yeah. the, what was the quote? It was, oh, it was very funny. Bill always did it. Uh, apparently Jeff Berlin uh, uses badass... Uh, Leo Kwan <laughs> badass bass bridges because it added to the bass sound. Sure. I'm quite... A, that was another thing like I... Certainly didn't invent bass bridges, but I would say I'm the guy that fairly well promoted the importance of a bass bridge. That the uniqueness, that the sound of a bass can resonate and can produce something unique if the bass bridge resonates well with the wood. Right. So I did that. And, and, um, but uh, 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 what would... The thin neck. The thin neck thing was... at Gretsch, right? It was at the... It wasn't Gretsch. It was actually Guild. And I knew a guy... I was at a NAMM show, and I knew a guy, and he worked for Guild, and how are you? You know, I was at a NAMM show, very early one. And I said, well, you know, I'm looking for a bass, and I wanted a thin neck instrument because uh, I felt like if you could have lower action and a thinner neck, you would have a, a more fluid and easy time playing. He says, he grabs a piece of paper and says, show me. I said, show me. I don't know what to do. So I drew out a very thin neck, and I drew out a rather low... I, I think I did a, a sideways view of, of uh, frets and, and the neck yeah. and the strings. And about six months later, this bass appears <laughs> on the market. And it was the very first, I think, I think, one of the very first thin neck and low action basses in bass history. And I thought, son of a gun, that was my innovation and I didn't get a penny for it. But that's sort of my story for a long time. So I added to that and uh, I would then... You know, try to in subsequent years make sure I can get a thinner and, and neck and a lower action only because. And Stanley Clark, by the way, had a thin neck too. Or he um, had the Alembic bass. He had the Alembic basses, yeah. and that was a, a, a thin, mm-hmm. I think, a very slender ish kind have, of neck. Was that like a Travis? Did that, that have aluminum in that, in that neck? No, that's a Travis Bean. Right, no, I, I thought Alembic did that too, but probably, I guess not. I don't recall yeah. that. Travis Bean had, the, had that, and I do believe. Uh, no, I can't remember. Was it Travis Bean that did it? Right. Put a, a, yeah, um, and, and aluminum and wood. Sure. It's a nice experiment. Um, so I started to use slender necks, and then in subsequent years, I would meet it up with people and say, use slender necks. Um, and you I, also used to do uh, very gauges, right? Well, yeah, that's true, too. I mean, you the popular... Mixed mix brands of string or gauges of strings. Gosh, I, I didn't know I shared all this stuff with you, but... Um, um, <laughs> And yeah, I would go down to We Buy Guitars on 48th Street. I knew Steve Friedman. 
And then up the street, I think, or across the street, I'd buy strings and would take two strings from this package and then two strings from that package mm -hmm. so that I could have strings that were reasonably slender and in a gauge that was not available on the market at that time, yeah. which is something I'd also promoted to string guys. I said, why don't you get 40, 60, 80, 100? And I think they had at the bare minimum 45, 65, 85, 105. And somehow they would have a package. They would have 45, 65, 80, 100. Or 40, yeah, yeah. 65, 85, 108. <laughs> and these strange things that were there. And I had to take a little time to come up with a, a, a concentric... Uh, consistent? Consistent, uh, uh, you know, set of strings. Sure. And... Um, that I think was just a kind of a new thing, and, I, and that's even now bass players aren't quite aware of the fact that you can get lower strings, still get a lot of bass sound, and and uh, not strain or or mess up your hands. So I did that. I mean tweeters. Uh, I'm not a big tweeter fan, and I'm one of the first guys to to emphasize no tweeters. Uh, was one of the. I mean I didn't invent 15 inch speakers. That's the Jamerson sound right there. <laughs> Jocko had the 18 inch you know backward thing. But in this modern day and age, more people are now attending to the 15 as a fuller range sound. Sure. I didn't invent that, but there was something else I was going to say. I, I had invented, a, oh, well, certainly in the musical thing, and I hope I'm not being too forward here. When Jocko invent, uh, played uh, Portrait of Tracy, it was sort of the premiere of an entirely new manner, a new paradigm of bass playing. Mm -hmm. In 1985, when I had a solo record, being a violinist and you know, trained in music, uh, classical music, and having four strings, I did an arrangement of Dixie. And I might be the first guy to actually play a chordal, uh, interwoven with harmony in one line going one way and another one going the other way. So I, I was a pretty good pioneer in a lot of things regarding sure. bass. And uh, I'm quite proud of that. There's other things, but I don't want to toot my own horn. No, you know, but I mean, that's... that's you've heard of diet chicken? It's me. I, okay. <laughs> well, now no all, these people, all these people are very rich that you gave the right test. <laughs> well, there, yeah. there it is. I mean, uh, today people often... Well, I, I will go for two seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sort of known for dissing a lot in base education because a lot in base education isn't the... The exception is the norm and almost the entirety of how I see base education working. So I'll say these things don't work and people will say to me, um, well, you're putting things down. What have you contributed to boost things up? Sure. What have you done? I mean, this doesn't work. That doesn't work. Well, what have you done to help us to learn how to play better when all I've heard you say is this doesn't work? And I felt that was a very good point. So, but I would list it. And I said, I, I created, for years, on my own dime, I created videos for people to practice, each one with a different musical principle to practice. I did that for years. I mean, in every clinic I ever did, I would write out exercises and give it to people to do. On the internet, I would give away lessons constantly. I gave stuff away. I gave free lessons to people who couldn't afford them. Um, I was, uh, and as I say, the core tone thing, even the approach note thing, um, I gave a lot of myself and never made one penny from it. And that sort of bodes towards the uh, the, the bass innovations that I had done for, mm -hmm. for the instrument. And certain pickup sounds, that's another thing, but I won't get into that. Sure. And I created and did a lot, am I, 
am I, when I got there at the late 70s, by the invitation of Pat Hicks, about 1980, I think I went, it was a reasonably small school mm-hmm. on, you know, to help. Again, this was my mentality. I got Eddie Van Halen, Bill Bruford, Neil Pert, uh, Stanley Clark, might have, I might have got, I don't recall that, but Jocko came in because of me. Um, it was a slew of guys. And I would get musicians, because I was fairly in the height of my name at that time, yeah. to come into the school and help promote the school. And I did this in order to help lift that sure. up. And my hope is, you know, afterward, maybe I could earn a percentage or, or for my efforts. When I left MI to move out of Los Angeles, my Christmas check, the royalty check when I was there, was $12 and <laughs> a few cents. So what I realize is, is that due to my weak attention to being compensated for my efforts... I said, this has to stop. And that's why, just as a quick thing, that's why I got into this lesson thing, because I thought it's about time I earned money for my efforts. A lot of people did get money off of me. A lot of people did uh, do well because of my suggestions and my uh, rather forthright giving of, of stuff. Rather done stupidly. I never really had the brains to understand that, but uh, it, I don't regret it. I don't. But uh, now it's, I'm... It's still to, pretty rare to find musicians who have a really good business acumen you know that they can really do the business side of what they do because the better the player usually the more they're focused on playing so I mean I think that happened to Alan Holdsworth too you know Alan invented a lot of things that I don't think he ever really received credit for or money for right I mean I guess yeah Mm -hmm. like real inventions that kind of revolutionized the guitar but was never able really to capitalize on it because he was never in a position to do it or didn't want to do it or musicians Mm -hmm. are also afraid to ask Oh, yes. Like you know, asking is, is a tough thing. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree 100%. And, and thankfully, I learned that lesson. So I don't think I'm wrong to say, you know, please don't uh, let's, uh, uh, hate, uh, uh, take my lesons and, and, and uh, right. we wanted to pirate talk, them. And, well, we wanted to talk about that because, you know, again, this is the brave new world, right, where anybody can take anything and send it to anyone else. And we're hoping that with these lessons that, you know, we're building a community of people yeah. that respect the, the fact that this is how everyone's making money. Right. We're, we're in this to obviously teach people and make money to do more things. And if people send this around and, and steal it, share with other friends, then obviously we don't get paid for that. So, yeah, that's I, a big I, thing now. That's I, a, I, mean, I agree with you. I mean, uh, you know, you go to a store and you pay money for a hard item. Yeah. Or, or a meal or some, you know, or a service. It's, it's reasonable. And I would also ask, I mean, if anyone's listening after my 90 minutes of talking about me, I got more to say about me if you want to stay on the air. Uh, I would say, please don't do that. Please do not share. Let people make the purchases. I I and you and all of us purchase things uh, reasonably paying money so that we can make a living and, uh, you know, and and provide a good service for it. So I I would make that. taught this for a number of years I mean it's intellectual property intellectual property for musicians now is is free but it's not free yeah it's not supposed to be free <laughs> we're supposed to get paid for our intellectual property I don't know how it became free other than people I guess don't have the conscience to say you know I should really pay for this it's sometimes it's an educational thing too I think people are not meaning to be no no know, no mercenary about it it's not malicious. They just, I got this thing. Hey, Billy, look at this. Look what I have. Oh, can you make me copies? Well, sure. 
I, I don't think it's malicious. It's it's more of an educational thing to make people aware. When 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 I got to Florida, uh, it was right after the Northridge earthquake, which scared me to the core of my sure. being, man. I do not want to go through anything like that again. <laughs> I got to Florida and somebody heard I was there and he was a jingle guy or something. Actually, uh, never mind his name. So he calls me up. He goes, yeah, I have a jingle. We want to do, you want to do, you want to do a jingle? I said, sure. Uh, or do a recording session for, for my son. You want to do a recording session? I said, yeah. I said, I'll charge you 500. He says, well, I thought I'd give you $50. I said, you really are offering $50 to me? I said, one, without being egotistical here, you're offering me $50 to do a session? And the answer was, well, you, you know, you're there, you're hanging out, you're not really doing much, you're working, you're not working, it's just... And it, it was honestly his explanation. So we, and I've had the experience, and you've had, actually we've had oh, the yeah, experience. Oh yeah, we've been down this road together also. Yeah. Have we not? Where people are surprised, oh. we want to do whatever, do this thing with you, but... Uh, you mean you want us to give you money for it too? And it's a disappointment, yeah, yeah. man. Yeah, to... it's like they're shocked. Oh, you want to get paid? Want to get paid? Yeah. I said, try hiring a lawyer, try hiring a doctor, a plumber. Right. They get paid, man. <laughs> well, I've actually found the same thing when I go online and I'll, I'll I'll write a post or something and say, well, if you want to learn and if you're looking to learn, these are the ways to do it. It's it's important. These other ways like it or not, are not going to give you what you want because they never have in other forms of music. So these are, you got to do this. And people would actually write and say, listen, man, I mean, what are you so intense about this? It's not like it's brain surgery or that important or nobody's dying or, you know, why don't you just let people be? And I, and I was mm. kind of, I never answered it publicly, but it states that music is not that important. What's the big deal? And I can agree that I can buy golf clubs mm -hmm. and go up to the putting range and not feel guilty about it. But I don't have a really a right to call myself a golfer. And I think that music, certainly for, for myself and you mm -hmm. and others that are listening, it's as important as life itself, as breath, as, as health, as love, you know, as security. Music counts to where people have died for it. And I don't recommend people dying for it, but they have literally. <laughs> sure. What's that fun movie? It's a, it's it's like a serious movie, but it was fun. It was uh, it was uh, uh, Kirk Douglas playing a jazz trumpet player, oh, and yes. he wouldn't go commercial. And ultimately, he died on the street, laying half on and half off a curb, <laughs> and the rain is washing over him, like laying in the curb. But his trumpet is under his arm. <laughs> And while I don't recommend that, I like the imagery of a guy so dedicated to sure. the importance of music that he literally, unfortunately, died for it. So I have no truck with people who say, well, it isn't that important. I say, well, I'm, I beg to differ. It is greatly oh, yeah, I mean, and it's, most it's, necessary. Yeah, Of course. Um, well, should we wrap this up? Any yeah. other things you want to talk about? Yeah. Um, how they part the Red Sea and the Ten Commandments. I never knew how they did uh, that. That's, that's, a, that's a conundrum. That's a conundrum. Wasn't how about that Trump? <laughs> about that Trump. <laughs> and the Yankees. <laughs> what else can we talk about? Damn, I think we should talk about religion Yankees, and politics Trump. now. I think. Want to talk about religion yes. and politics? <laughs> That's it. Uh, you know God. Where does space? Have you ever heard of God? <laughs> how does how does religion and bass playing go together? <laughs> <laughs> I was sleeping and God spoke to me last night. And uh, I'm on my meds, so I know it was really God. We didn't cover your 
after Bruford period, but we'll, we'll get to that. Another I time. did a lot. I did a yeah. lot. It was a fun thing. I should talk about the Van Halen thing and the, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll come do. back. We'll have, we'll have more of these. I hope this was entertaining and I hope I didn't monologue too much. I, I like... didn't make you cry though. No, I you didn't. didn't. Make you cry. You didn't cry. Make me cry. But you did. Made made you made me remember that I didn't earn any money from Slender Bass Next, and I and I really don't yeah, appreciate just like that. To throw that out for you. <laughs> yes, screwed again. Screwed again. So thanks well, everybody. That's thank very you. kind of you to be here. This is John McCracken, my dear friend, my producer, uh, the producer of Joe Frazier, the producer of all the uh, bass lessons that I have been writing, the uh, upcoming producer of Jack Bruce the upcoming producer of uh, my uh, classical recordings that I subsequently will be doing, and all on other projects that we have in mind. We're thinking of, of doing a live, let's say, I don't like to use the word camp, but I would say gatherings, a place where bass players who are interested in learning how to play better. Yep. Yep. Um, I think the best way to do this is to sit down and talk and show you, and I can do it en masse. So we're planning that. We have a lot of plans, and thanks, John, for uh, hanging with me today. Welcome, Jeff. A lot of fun. A lot of fun. More to talk about. I'm really going to grill you next time. Hey. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Uh.